This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is there is a strain of conservatism that has embraced the politics of Viktor Orban, who is the prime minister of Hungary. And uh, Matt Conneny had a great column in the Wall Street Journal about how the American right is starting to speak with a Hungarian accent. Viktor Orban is a conservative nationalist leader of Hungary. He was recently invited to speak at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Dallas. And not only that, CPAC actually went and had a CPAC Budapest where they sort of embraced Orbanism in its entirety. And this is a strain on the right that is sort of perplexing to me concerning to me because I think that there's parts of it that are more concerning than others. But particularly what's concerning is that Viktor Orban, who many on the right are embracing, is the possibly in Western Europe, the number one ally of Vladimir Putin, who he's been a longtime ally of Putin. He, you know, he's pushing for a stop to like the aid to Ukraine and, and sort of he's a fellow traveler with this KGB agent who's running Russia and turning it into a, a, a fascist new Soviet Union. And I just find it perplexing that American conservatives would embrace someone who embraces Putin in this way. For a lot of us who are conservative and for whom American conservatism, really freedom, you know, democracy, using our God-given rights and privileges to stand up for the God-given rights and privileges of others. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things uh, that I love. One of our colleagues was visiting Normandy last week, and he sent me a picture of Point du Hoc, which is Famous one of the boys of Point du Hoc. Exactly, and it, it is this this geographic outcropping in Normandy where Ronald Reagan gave a speech on the 40th anniversary of the Normandy landings that were the beginning of the end of World War II, and it is a wonderful, wonderful speech. And for me, everything that he says, every, all of those principles that were articulated at that moment are as resonant today as they were 40 years ago and 40 years before that. And it, what is fascinating to me is the drift that has happened People who believed that this was right when we were fighting the Soviets and now think that, you know, and now think that a Putin ally is the second coming of Ronald Reagan. I'll tell you, I played the Boys of Puente Hawk speech for my kids during a subsequent anniversary of D-Day. And they looked at me and they're like, Dad, why are you crying? I mean, I literally can't watch that speech without without, without, speech. without welling up in we'll tears. We'll link it here. Um, we will, absolutely. Actually, can I encapsulate for yes. you the antithesis of that speech? Here, and I quote, There is a world in which European people are mixed together with those arriving from outside Europe. Now that is a mixed-race world. And there is our world, where people from within Europe mix with one another, move around, and relocate. And then there's some description of various Carpathian things that are not relevant to us. This is what we have always fought. We are always willing to mix with one another, but we do not want to become peoples of mixed race. 
this is why we fought at Belgrade. This is why we stopped the Turks at Vienna. And if I am not mistaken, this is why in still older times, the French stopped the Arabs at Poitiers. Like that's the antithesis, right? This is the, you know, we're all white people here and where we need to draw the border is with brown people. That, by the this way, for those who didn't know, that's Viktor Orban that uh, speaking. Orban. And right, one of his cabinet right members resigned over that, but who was a, who was a child of uh, Holocaust, Holocaust survivors, survivors who, who resigned and said that's basically neo-Nazi right. uh, uh, ideology. But immediately yeah. after this speech that he gave, he went and spoke at an American conference, an American gathering of American conservatives and a venerable organization, CPAC, that Ronald Reagan spoke at, that, you know, AEI has long known and in some years been involved with. And he went and was the honored guest speaker at CPAC in Texas. Yep, absolutely. I, I find it. I found it shocking. But here's the thing. So we started to talk about this at the la- in, in one of our recent podcasts, and this is why we're having this podcast today, because we decided to do a deeper dive in it with Matt Continenti, who's going to be on with us in a moment. But this is the difference between European nationalism and American nationalism, and I'm why I'm very comfortable with American nationalism right. and why I think trying to graft on this blood and soil nationalism of Orban onto the American conservative movement is, is such a bad idea. Blood and soil nationalism, like you see in Hungary and other places, is by definition exclusive because it is saying we are a people and we are contained within ourselves and outsiders are not welcome, basically, right? And American conservatism is the opposite because our nation wasn't founded on blood and soil. Our nation was the first nation in human history that was founded on an idea, the idea of human freedom, the principles of our Declaration of Independence, the principles of our Constitution. And that means a nationalism built on those ideas is inherently inclusive because anyone who subscribes to that creed can be a part of it. And we hold, I hold, I think you hold as well, that this is the greatest nation in the history of the world. And still is that we are. And it was built on we that, are, that mixed race, right, idea. You know, so the, I, always, I always joke around when I, when I speak, speak with audiences about these ideas that if, if your parents came here on the Mayflower, you're descended from boat people. Right. Exactly. The only close thing we have to an aristocracy is to have been part of, you know, Washington's army, daughters of the American Revolution. All those people were the wretched refuse of Europe, the people who were rejected by the monarchists and the and the class and had no way to rise up through their societies because they were so class stratified. And so they came here because this is a place where anybody could make it if you just worked hard enough and had enough gumption to get here and work. And so an American nationalism that embraces the idea that our I, I'm willing to say it, ours is is our society and our system of government is superior to all other systems of government ever in the history of mankind and is a beacon to the world for that. If you're willing to, I'm willing to say that this is the greatest nation on earth is superior to other nations and therefore I'm a nationalist, but I'm an inclusive nationalist because anybody can be a part of this project. Whereas whereas European nationalism is based on blood and soil. It's inherently inclusive. And so we, we have to, embrace what is good about nationalism in America and fight against the people who are trying to graft on a alien form of nationalism based on blood and soil nationalism of the kind that we see in Europe. Well, not just based on blood and soil nationalism, but also based on hostility to the other, right? Based on, based on a... Which is fundamentally un-American. Right. I guess what confuses me is why conservatives in America have gone in search of foreign idols, 
you know, yeah. to put it sort of in a romantic way. You know, we've got we've got lots of great idols. We've got Thomas Jefferson. We've got Ronald Reagan. We've got FDR. You know, uh, not a big John F. Kennedy fan, but I mean, okay, take him too. Why the love affair? Why the love affair with Orban himself? Um, so, no, look, I mean, I agree with you totally. Um, there is something so qualitatively different about what it feels what it feels like to be an American. It's not just that, you know, I mean, you know, I, and I always talk about this on the podcast too, you know, it's not just that I'm an immigrant. And I mean, I'm proud for, of the countries that, you know, I came from and that my parents came from and the fights that they fought. But I mean, I'm so happy to have landed in a place where, Nobody until very recently said, I'm sorry, where are you from exactly? Because what you said was... Or they said it back then, say, where are you from? That's a really interesting accent. But or in a like great, that, admiring, in way, an admiring way. Right? I, yeah. I, so I had a great experience, which uh, uh, I haven't thought about in a while, where I was uh, testifying for Capitol Hill and very unpleasant member of Congress was grilling me. And uh, you guys will hear how long ago this was from who I referred to. But he was, you know, are you one of those neoconservative, foreign, blah, 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 like that to me? And uh, and I, I was really quite flummoxed uh, that somebody would speak to me in that way from, you know, in our seat of government. And Tom Cotton, who was a member of the House, turned to him and said, I think what I would call Miss Plutka is an American. <laughs> and I thought, exactly, that's yeah. what's great. So, and that's what that and that was the conservative smacking down this nasty lefty congressman from Virginia. So here that reminds me of another story. So of course I'm the child of an immigrant. My mother came from uh, for listeners of the podcast who've, who have talked about her before, came from Poland. She fought in the Warsaw Uprising against the Nazis, uh, was taken prisoner of war, went to Germany, uh, made her way to England, was a POW, liberated by Patton, all the rest of it. And she came to America uh, and made a life here. And proudest American you've ever, ever known. And I remember I was once riding with her in a taxi. In, uh, and we were traveling on a, on a family vacation somewhere, and, and the guy heard her accent, thick, foolish accent. And uh, he asked her, where are you from? And she said, New York City. <laughs> because, you know. Because that's where she was because from. Because that's where she was from. And, right. you know, and she, he knew, she knew exactly what he was asking. And I remember after the, uh, the fall of communism, Polish diaspora was allowed to vote in the first free Polish elections. And the second biggest voting district outside of Warsaw was Chicago. Yeah, um, well, it still is. And, and, <laughs> and my mother refused to vote because she said, I'm proud to have come from Poland. I love Poland, but I'm an American now. I don't vote in foreign elections. Right. You know, and her. so and so, you know, this, and as what, liberal as the day is long, and as liberal add. as the day is long, exactly. Yes, um, and uh, and horrified by that, I worked in the George W. Bush administration, but yet somehow proud. <laughs> but but I mean, the point is that you can be a nationalist in America because it's based on an idea. Mm-hmm. And there, what I'm concerned about, you know, putting aside the person of Viktor Orban and the offensiveness of, of what he stands for in so many ways, this idea that what's creeping into the right is his blood and soil nationalism. And that is hostile not just to illegal immigration. I'm hostile to illegal immigration. I think what's happening on our southern border is an absolute monstrosity. Um, but that's not, and, but, it, but it comes with a lot of other baggage. And for some reason, well, there no, are people who every, embrace that every, baggage. I think... This is a minority view within the conservative movement. I mean, you know, that's not what we're going to hear in a minute from. Well, Matt. no, he did. Say, I mean, if you look at, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to preview what he said, but I think this is still a minority view within the conservative movement, and I think what we need to do is find a way to 
synthesize the good parts of conservative nationalism with, with, with the traditions of Ronald Reagan. We need a strong leader to do that, too. No, wait, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, uh, you know what we do? We need a strong guest to tell us how to do it. Exactly. So <laughs> we've had Matt on before. He came to talk about um, his book, but Matthew Continetti is a senior fellow and the inaugural Patrick and Charlene Neal Chair in American Prosperity at AEI here with us. But he really has written a masterful uh, new book that came out uh, earlier this year called The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Mark and I both loved it. We couldn't recommend it highly enough. We'll hyperlink it for you. And here's our interview. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you here. So you just wrote a great essay in the Wall Street Journal in the weekend section. And you said the American right is beginning to speak with a Hungarian accent. What do you mean? Well, um, the uh, essay was occasioned by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's uh, speech to CPAC. And uh, this got a lot of attention because typically... The conservative yes, political, the action conservative political action conference. So it's been going on since about 1973, annual gathering of conservative activists. And uh, normally uh, heads of state from other countries don't come and address CPAC, uh, much less uh, ones as controversial as Viktor Orban. And uh, I use that speech as kind of the entryway to explore the changing American right here at home. And what I found is that the American right today is um, resembling more and more its European cousins um, in terms of their nationalism, uh, their focus on the culture war, focus on immigration, and lamentably, in particular, uh, their foreign policy. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this, because only enough, before you walked in, Mark and I were talking about Giorgia Meloni in, in Italy, and I find the coverage of her really mindless. I, you know, I think she probably was actually in the olden days an Ottomanite, but she has since really sort of moved, not centerwards, but to a sort of a much more principled, what we would talk of as principled conservative policy. One of her first calls was to Zelensky to say that Italy supports Ukraine, whereupon Putin, by the way, uh, turned off the gas immediately to Italy. Uh, but you know, not to digress and talk about Italy, but when you say the American right increasingly resembles this nationalist sort of Orbanite, I mean, what do you mean? I mean, I'm, I'm part of the American right, and I certainly don't think that. Mark is, too. I think you are, too. Sure. This is not who we are. And could you explain what Orbanism is? Like, what are his policies? Tall order. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the American right, since World War II, has typically stood for individual freedom and liberty, a strong a national defense in furtherance of those aims overseas, right? Uh, so... Uh, we're going to be have peace through strength in order to deter the enemies of freedom. I always like the phrase from the uh, 2002 National Security Strategy of the United States where Condoleezza Rice wrote of a balance of power that favors freedom. I think that really encapsulates what the American right really stood for for much of the post-World War II era. Now, about half the American right still believes in that. It's about freedom protecting the Constitution, individual liberties, economic freedom, peace through strength. The, now we can call that the, the, the Reagan conservatives. But over the last seven years, um, there's been this new energetic force, which we might call the Trump populists, which have a different view of the role of the right. They're much less concerned about 
the size and scope of the government. They're much more interested in defining the borders of the nation and of citizenship. Uh, they're less interested in um, economic freedom. Uh, they're more interested in using government to further their cultural ends. And they're much less interested in a peace through strength policy that also has an assertive component of American leadership and freedom. And they're more interested in what they call America first, which is that you know, America should not be involved in entangling alliances. America should really kind of keep to its a nationalist, unilateralist path. And America should respect the claims of a country like Russia when it talks about having a sphere of influence. So I'd say the party, the Republican Party and the conservative movement are um, split between the Reagan conservatives and the Trump populists. And in today's right, Orban has become a, a symbol um, uh, of the potential of the Trump populist wing. He's, he's not Trump, right? But he's what I think a lot of Trump populists would like in a leader. Uh, and he shares those characteristics I just described. Just a really quick follow-up. You say it's a battle, obviously, in the right. I don't think any of us disagree with you. You say it's about half and half. Is it polling that you're looking at, or where do you get this sense? Well, that's I took half and half. Just I was just looking at a recent poll of um, that asked Republicans, do you want Trump to run again? And I think this was the Washington Post poll that came out in late September, and it, the party was literally split. About 47% said they want him to run again in 2024, and 46% said um, that they want an alternative. Now, so that's just Republican partisans. Um, if you think about uh, kind of where Republican voters are, it's, a, it's, it's hard to tell because uh, they like Donald Trump. They like all the issues that he stands for. On the foreign policy dimension in particular, there's more of a divide, I think. And... Um, if we just go by the vote for the controversial $40 billion in assistance, we see that, look, you know, about a quarter of House Republicans voted against it and a fifth of the Senate Republicans voted against it. That's not 50-50, right? Uh, but I do expect those numbers to grow the next time um, that a big bill like this comes up for assistance to Ukraine. Orban talks about building an illiberal democracy. What, what is an illiberal democracy? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, a lot depends on what we take to mean liberalism. But in in his speech in 2014, where Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, kind of first introduced this concept of illiberal democracy, he went out of his way to kind of say that this did not deny, and I quote, foundational values of liberalism such as freedom. So his idea of illiberal democracy incorporates freedom, but it really doesn't dwell on it. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, put it that way. They don't deny yeah. that issue, but it's not really their major concern. What liberal democracy would be is basically a popular democracy, right? So that wins majority support, and in Orban's case, supermajority support from the public. But that is actually that is opposed to what we consider to be liberal cultural values, and so is opposed to um, kind of a pro-immigrant mentality. It's opposed to civil liberties, right, or the very wide stance on civil liberties that the progressive left uh, advocates today. It's against LGBT uh, rights. Um, so it's, it's a democracy, 
it's just not a democracy that supports uh, the agenda of today's global progressive left. Let's talk a little bit about how this is sort of foreign to America because, you know, Orban is, you know, anti-immigrant in Hungary. Well, Hungary is a nation of 10 million people. You define a Hungarian by somebody who's from Hungary and has been from Hungary for generations and speaks Hungarian and all the rest of it. An American can be anybody, right? You know, we're a democracy built on an idea. So having a lot of people with a different religion, different culture, different language come into your country, that's that's one thing. How do you take that yeah. and apply that to a country like America, which is a multicultural you know, democracy of the riffraff that were cast out of Europe for generations ago? Mm-hmm. Um, and anybody who's subscribed to our creed can be an American. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does that kind of uh, apply here? It's a great question. And I'll just start by saying, in fact, even Orban's um, opposition to immigration is kind of uh, couched because... Actually, Hungary depends a lot on EU workers from other EU mm-hmm. countries sure. because Hungary, like many countries in um, Europe, is having a demographic crisis. It's mainly opposition to Muslim immigration okay. uh, that Orban um, makes as a focus of his agenda. But even these, you know, Western European immigrants, if they or or actually immigrants from other Eastern European countries who come to Hungary to work, they wouldn't be considered Hungarian in the blood and soil identity of the Hungarian nation, right? And that gets to your point, which is that there's just a real difference historically between the American right and the European right on this question. I consider American conservatives people who are interested in defending the principles and institutions of the American founding. And we are unlike other countries in that we have a decisive founding that we can point to, right? And we have the Declaration of Independence we have the period of the Articles of Confederation. Finally, we, in 1787, we have the Constitution that we have lived under. We have been governed by ever since. And there's uh, those institutions are, you know, a variety of goals put forth in the preamble to the Constitution. But for me, always the key has been to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. Right. So liberty is front and center. And now as well, when we consider the other documents and institutions of the founding. We have this idea that they're universally uh, applicable, that in fact, you know, everybody is created equal in the eyes of God, and uh, everybody has the right to um, live under a government to which they consent, right? And everybody has these fundamental inalienable rights. Well, that sense um, of one, a founding that you can pinpoint uh, and in, in a set of institutions and documents, and two, kind of a, uh, a political philosophy that has this universalist aspect to it is missing from a lot of the European right. The European right has always kind of stood for defending the inherited institutions of like the monarchy or the established church or the uh, nobility, right, the aristocracy. And we have none of that here. What I think is interesting is that the group of conservatives um, who are most interested in Orban uh, and Trump populism, uh, call themselves the national conservatives. And over the summer, they released a manifesto that was very revealing because, one, it didn't talk about those universal ideas of freedom that you would find in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and two, it had a very, very different attitude toward um, religion in the public square than most Americans do. Most Americans believe in religious liberty, I I think most American conservatives believe that religious arguments should have a hearing in the public sphere. 
But no religious argument should be privileged over another because we have freedom of religion and religious liberty and no establishment of religion in this country. Well, if you look at the National Conservative Manifesto, they basically toss all that aside and they, and they say in their manifesto that if whatever the majority happens to be, that, that majority's religion ought to be expressed and honored in the government. And that is a very European understanding. In fact, it's even, it, it's almost an, uh, if you read it closely enough, it's more like an Ottoman empire understanding of, of the place of religion in the public life. And that's, that's why this battle between these two uh, wings of the right is so ferocious and also why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, when you say that, all I think to myself is, yes, it should be ferocious. It is right for it to be ferocious. Now, obviously, there are people who I don't admire, who are the sort of the CPAC, Orban admiring crowd, who are, you know, flaming pitchfork types, um, Tucker Carlson, Steve Bannon, people like that. But there are thoughtful people as well. And for me, it begs the question, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. Why was this the correct answer to the cultural exaggerations and in many ways the cultural totalitarianism of the left? Right. Well, um, in a way, you kind of answered your own question there, Danny. But um, I would just use the example of Orban himself. And what's funny is Orban is not really a pitchfork guy. Mm -hmm. He's very thoughtful. You read his speeches and they read like, uh, essays you would find in some quarterly journal of political philosophy. And Orban <laughs> himself started out... Just like it, Donald Trump's. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Uh, yeah, Orban is not as good at Twitter as President Trump, right? Um, so he also started out in a position that was kind of more like American conservatism, Reagan conservatism, than he is today. He was the prime minister who brought Hungary into NATO. Into NATO, yeah. Um, he was part of the downfall of communism mm. in Hungary. He admired Reagan. He still admires Reagan, Thatcher, John Paul II, all the great heroes of, of what was once described as the revolution of 1989. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a real difference between his first prime ministership, which happened in the 1990s and which um, resulted in market reforms and NATO accession, and then the prime ministerships that have happened subsequent to the global financial crisis. And in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, Orban's interests began to change. He was no longer as supportive of what we would call globalization, right? He became much more interested in cultural questions rather than economic ones. And I think that's true of the right in general. It took us a while to see that because the post-global financial crisis right in America manifested itself first as a Tea Party, right, which we took to be kind of this limited government, you know, stop the spending, get back to the Constitution, but which over time, in my view, the Tea Party became the MAGA movement, mm-hmm. became the Trump movement. And it was that anti-establishment spirit it had began to carry over into everything. Don't trust anyone. Don't All institutions are bankrupt. And you see that with Orban, that's, that the post-financial crisis, the world has changed. The left is becoming much more determined to implement its agenda in non-democratic ways. 
And what's necessary then is to basically leverage the political power you have to undermining the cultural power of the left. And that's Orbanism, and that's basically the strategy that he is imparting to the national conservatives and the Trump populists. I mean, the political situation is so different in Europe. I mean, we talked a little bit about how the, the size of Hungary and the fact that all these nations in Europe are blood and soil nations, whereas our country has never been built on blood and soil, but on an idea, which is democracy and the principles of the, of the founding. But if you look at Europe, you know, you've got all these countries like Hungary, like Poland, where you have a law and justice party, which is similar except in its Putinism to Orban. Uh, you have Maloney now rising in Italy. A lot of these Central European countries were suppressed by the Soviet empire, finally got their sovereignty back, and then immediately joined the EU, and now they have these unelected supranational commissars telling them how to run their, their countries, and so there's a rebellion against that. Mm -hmm. You have a much more advanced wokeism and secularism in Europe than you have here in the United States, right? So they're responding to real threats to things that conservatives hold dear, right? Whereas here in the United States, I think there's a concern that some of those things are starting to happen here as well. Yes. And so is this a natural reaction to the fact that we're sort of a little bit behind the curve, but we can see in Europe what the future holds if we don't push back on it? Or is this just some strange effort to graft blood and soil nationalism onto our country? Well, I think in the cultural sphere, Europe may have been a little bit ahead of the curve. And now... The, this turn is the result of America. You starting to see like you know wokeism in America. In fact, many people say that wokeism is an American export. Right? We got since the summer of 2020 and the 60 and the year before the 1619 project. America has excelled at wokeism, and um, and this has generated a big backlash at home. And so you're saying, okay, well, if Orban has the same enemies as I do, mm -hmm. oh, I'm on his side. I mean, that that kind of logic dominates all political thinking now. I do think, though, populist right, the Trump populists, have reacted to a similar crisis of legitimacy that you kind of saw in Europe uh, with the EU crisis and kind of ramming down all these economic measures on the southern European countries and opening the border to the Muslim migration in 2015 that many countries in Eastern Europe rebelled against. And, of course, Italy's politics is still being rocked by that. And that is, during the Obama years, there was a sense that the bureaucracies and the judges were, and the president, the executive, were operating independently of any democratic checks. So, I mean, I'll just go through the list really quickly. Pre-Obama, pre-financial crisis, all right, if the race to replace Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion in the Senate, was waged on one issue, which was the president's health care proposal, and Ted Kennedy's party, the president's party, lost that seat to a guy whose campaign ads featured him driving around in a pickup truck simply saying, stop this health care bill. The Democratic president probably would have stopped his health care bill, right? Probably or at least changed it so that, oh, I got to deal with this public uh, rebuke, which is happening in Massachusetts, even before the midterm elections. Obama didn't do that. They rammed it through anyway on this partisan vote, right? Sort of like Bill Clinton with Hillary Care. Exactly. So that's the difference yeah. you can see between the two periods, pre-global financial crisis, post-global financial crisis. And then Obama wins a second term, right? And it gets, even, it gets even wackier. Obama says dozens of times that he lacks the authority to expand his Dreamers program. But then he does it anyway, 
after the 2014 election, which was an even better election for the Republicans than 2010 had been. I mean, 2010, they picked up a massive number of House seats, but in 2014, they held the House and they got the Senate, right? Finally. Obama didn't care. He famously said at the press conference afterwards, well, you know, I heard the people that he was asked, do you hear the people who voted against you? He goes, yeah, I hear them. And I also hear the people who voted for me and the people who don't vote. And I'm going to go for those people, right? And then there was a series of bureaucratic and court decisions that were happening at the same time. Um, we were talking about um, our current Supreme Court and its um, efforts basically to force the, e- the Congress to legislate when it comes to what the EPA ought to do to combat climate change, right? The EPA, prior to this past summer, was basically doing whatever it wanted, right? And regardless of what Congress was saying, because it felt it had that authority. And especially for religious conservatives, the very touchy subjects of um, uh, gay rights, trans rights, were, were being um, utilized by the judiciary uh, or being determined by the judiciary and the bureaucracy. So late in Obama's term, you had the directive uh, saying that schools should have gender-neutral bathrooms. It just came out of the bureaucracy. Of course, in 2015, you had the legalization of same-sex marriage with the Obergefell decision nationwide. And I think that sent the right, the religious right in particular, into this mode of um, deep concern and panic, where one, they were wanted someone who would be a strong man and fight back against this stuff and not listen to the liberals. And two, they wanted a stronger state in the form of their political power to go after these progressives who were furthering this cultural and moral agenda that they found distasteful. What's unusual about the right in America, though, is like they can't take yes for an answer. So, right, you know, a few months ago, uh, while we're taping this, um, the Supreme Court reversed the Roe v. Wade decision, right? It said the Supreme Court announced after 50 years that no, there is no constitutional right to abortion. You would think that the Trump populace would say, yes, we're winning. This is great. There's more to do. But instead, they've remained in kind of this sense that the world is falling apart. We, we need to be more assertive, right? They well, won't but, take mean, the yes crisis, for an answer. But, the, of course, bec- that is because they are most powerful when there is a crisis. I guess so, they, right. I right? Mean, exactly. And this is this is sort of the, the perpetual emergency. So I would just say that I think the right in Europe is in a far worse position than the American right is. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're, oh, Orban or, you know, or that Maloney or all these names that we become part of our, you know, vocabulary in, in here in D.C. The American right, in truth, I think Reagan conservatism is doing really well. It's, you know, it's doing very well at the state level. It's doing extremely well in the courts. And at the federal level, it could have a, could have a role in the next Congress. So, and yet... From the tr- the Trump populists have to see everything as falling apart, everything is losing in order to justify their agenda and and most importantly their choice of leader, former President Trump. I mean, I really appreciate your analysis. I think it's really trenchant, and I think it's important. One thing that I hear in talking to you about this, though, is not the divide between what I would think of as the normal right and the loony right or the normal left and the loony left or anything else, what I see is a huge convergence among everybody. So, you know, you've got, you know, Stacey Abrams, I won the election, you stole it from me, 
turns into Donald Trump. I won the election, you know, and everybody and God voted for me and God and Jesus voted for me too. And you see the cultural authoritarianism of the left, whether it's in the university or it's in the government or it's in the toilet, turning into the the efforts at cultural authoritarianism on the right as well. In other words, there is this sort of great illiberalism that has taken hold not of the Republican Party, it has taken hold of the country. Am I just being insane? No, you're not. I mean, uh, think of it in terms of um, President Biden's decision on student loans to bail out the student loan program. Utterly lawless, right? He doesn't have any authority to do that. And then they changed it. Once they realized that they would face a stiff legal challenge last week, he just, oh, the bureaucracy just, oh, change it. Forget about that, what we just said. He pulled away a lot of the relief from people in order to, I think, unsuccessfully shield himself from lawsuit. And that, again, that gets to this crisis of legitimacy. If these bureaucracies are just operating completely independently of democratic accountability, all of a sudden, Orban comes along and you're like, oh, He's going to actually put his thumb on the scales. And, I mean, take Ron DeSantis, who I think is the closest, and this will be a controversial statement, and I I say it purely neutrally. He is the closest America has to an Orban in the sense that he is going to take on the institutions of the left wherever he sees them. And now I think he's done it in a way that synthesizes a lot of Reagan conservatism with it. But take Disney. He'll go after Disney. He will go after if uh, vaccine mandates, right? He that's been wrapped up into this as well. He'll go after the companies, right? And people feel as though they're pushed into that type of corner. And when they see a leader acting like this, they 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 respond positively. I would say the one big difference, though, continues to be foreign policy. And so here, Orban is f- interesting because he is a longtime ally of Putin. Um, they rely on Russian gas. Orban's cronies have a lot of similar financial interests with Russian oligarchs. And Orban and the Hungarians have gone out of the way to say, yes, Ukraine is the aggrieved party. Yes, Putin is acting lawlessly. But we should stop escalation and demand a ceasefire and get to the negotiating table. And so when Orban went to CPAC, this gathering of conservatives over the summer, that actually was the final sixth of his speech. His final paragraphs Mm -hmm. were all about We need a strong leader to come in and force the parties, i.e. Ukraine, to the negotiating table uh, so that we can get an immediate ceasefire. So we can have a frozen conflict like we have everywhere else that'll serve Russia. Right. I think most American conservatives still are not there when it comes to Putin. They still see reality for what it is, and they're still supportive of uh, assistance to the Ukrainians. But, There's um, a growing Putinism in the right, but they, I mean, but again, did you see the same kind well, of we people? Have this in our well, you, think ju- community. You, ju- right. you just had this, you know, incident where like somebody CPAC put out a tweet, right. uh, so you know that was basically defending Putin. It was Putin talking points. Left um, it up for twelve hours. Left up for, well, it was they left it up for twelve hours because they were in the middle of CPAC Australia, and Matt Schlapp was sleeping when this happened, and woke up in the morning and found out about it and, and took it down. But the fact that anyone would think that that was okay to put up is just shocking to me. I sort of. I'm neutral on some of what Orban stands for because of, um, it's a different situation in a different different continent with different political pressures. But the Putinism is the thing that I don't understand and what I don't understand anybody on the right in America embracing in any way because what we're doing in Ukraine is fundamentally Reagan-esque. It's the Reagan doctrine. It's almost the same exact timing. You know, After the Vietnam War, nobody wanted to go and fight wars in other countries to defend our interests. 
And so we decided to find freedom fighters around the world who were willing to fight themselves. And we gave them weapons and training and intelligence, and they went fought our enemies for us. This was the great innovation of Ronald Reagan that won the Cold War. And here we have a KGB agent. You know, you know, Dick Cheney said, well, I look into Putin's soul and I see three letters, KGB. Versus a, versus a child of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Exactly. It couldn't, and, it couldn't be more clear. And we're doing exactly what Ronald Reagan did, which is arm the good guys to fight the KGB agent. How could anybody on the right not be in favor of that? Oh, but wait, Mark, I, I want to everybody, this is, you know, the kind of recondite Washington thing that you, we always end up talking about, and then we don't give people the backstory. Let me read the tweet for a second that yeah, you're talking sure. about. So it says, it, well, first of all, it had a picture of a Russian flag, described the annexation of various new regions of Ukraine as official, uh, and said, quote, Biden and the Dems continue to send Ukraine billions of taxpayer dollars. Meanwhile, we are under attack at our southern border. When will Democrats put America first and end the gift giving to Ukraine? And by the way, every single word of that either could be said or has been said by J.D. Vance in a campaign speech. So this is not just some. This is not CPAC. just some rogue intern. This is a, this is a strain on the right that that sees. A lot this. of them are saying that. Yeah, um, like Masters in Arizona is saying the same thing. And what the hell? I'm sorry, and and as much as I love our friends at the Heritage Foundation, that is what the position that they took. You know, not universally, obviously, and there are a lot of people there who disagree, but this is the position their leadership Well, they whipped against the bill, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, against the uh, Ukraine aid. Um, Yeah, Heritage Action did. Yeah. Um, I wish I had an answer for you. (laughs) Well, damn it, Matt. You're not. Let's not get him on again. Well, I'm just going to. So, I mean, you know, one of the arguments in my book is that when you look at the broad history of the American right over the last century, Reaganism is something of an exception in my view, and was definitely informed by the realities of the Cold War. And uh, since the end of the Cold War, the right has come to resemble its pre-World War II self in a lot of ways. And I take the debate over aid to Ukraine to be another... Neutralities Act. Another, yeah, data point in that, in my thesis, that the right today is increasingly resemble the right of 100 years ago. And um, a lot of it has to do with religion and culture. And so what you see with a lot of these apologists for Putin are the people who say that, you know, Putin invaded because of the United States, right? Or people who say that, you know, Biden is escalating the war, not Putin, it's Biden, if only he had the gumption to escalate exactly. anything. Like the geniuses who think he blew up the pipeline. The, those people <laughs> tend, they tend to fixate on the fact that Ukraine, in its desire to be part of the West, takes a much more liberal view on matters relating to the family and sexuality than the nationalists, I, I think it's now fair to say fascists, who run Russia. And so you will immediately see that. You know, say references to all well, the pride flags in Ukraine, but you know, there are no pronouns Putin doesn't do pronouns. That's what they say. And I think that drives a lot of it. I couldn't disagree with their conclusions more. <laughs> I mean, That's, you know. But that was actually the question I wanted to ask you, less, less in the context of Russia and Ukraine, but more, you know, as the driver. So, you know, I said, and I think you agreed, there's a sort of, you know, a, a collective unhinging of the, uh, you know, of, of the political class and the followers in America on both the, the left and the right. But the question I wanted to ask you is, you know, when did we lose our shit? When did we when did we become this? And actually what I theorize is not that we lost it over this cultural stuff. It's that we lost it during the financial crisis and this cultural stuff 
is just sort of the kindling on the flame, the oil on the flame, whatever it is. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What do you think? Right. I mean, um, it was actually a very Marxist argument. Uh, Danny, <laughs> that's, you know that's where the Marxists in the audience you know would say, "Hey, she's, you know <laughs> Screw that the, Lenin right, guy, the, yeah. well, Marx she, all the way." So, uh, when did we go wrong? I think a lot of these sentiments have been around for a long time. So, in the 1990s, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we had a big debate on the right about the purposes of American power. Charles Krauthammer took one side, Patrick Buchanan took the other. Right? Today's right leans more toward the Patrick Buchanan side of the argument. Um, on the question of the role of constitutional government and the sexual revolution in the 1990s, there was a big controversy on the intellectual right over uh, the journal First Things and its position that a gay rights decision by the courts basically, basically called into question the legitimacy of the American government. So this was in 1996, 1997, we had this debate. So that was always there prior to the financial crisis. I think what happened after the financial crisis was, was an acceleration of these trends and an um, erosion of the ability to contain and cabin off kind of the worst elements of left and right. And part of that was technology, social media, Amplifying voices that previously were just sort of screaming at their mirror. Right. I mean, and us carrying around. Didn't have to memoriograph their memos and send it to a mailing list. Carrying around our our supercomputers in our pockets where we have access to every every single point of view. Part of that was technology. Part of that was um, cultural developments at the very tail end of the Obama years, especially in regard to race questions in the United States. And part of it, again, I think, is a result of leadership, which is to say the right had the moment, uh, an inflection point in 2016. And Donald Trump won the nomination of the Republican Party with about the same vote share as Bernie Sanders got losing the nomination in the Democratic Party. But most importantly, Donald Trump became the president of the United States. If he had not become the president of the United States, we, I think we'd be having different conversations now. I think they'd be similar in some ways, but they would not entirely be the same conversations. Um, but he's the president, and he was president for four years, and his being president inevitably changed the Republican Party's institution and the conservative movement, which had been so long associated with the Republican Party. And of course, Trump Trump not only changes his party, he changes the other party. He's that consequential a figure that he, he both changed his party, but he also radicalized the other one. Usually you need a two-term presidency to really change the other party, but he did it in four years. An accomplished man, um, uh, he and, and he's doing it today, voters. and he's not even president. You know, so it's still it's quite it's quite remarkable. Um, but I think that's kind of where I'd point to. Obviously, economics are part of it, but I, I think there's there's a lot of this cultural and political and and kind of intangible leadership stuff at work as well. So I want to talk about this. You said something about how DeSantis sort of synthesizes populist conservatism with Reagan conservatism. So one of the great and by the way, for ever, anyone who hasn't read it yet, go get your copy of The Right, Matt Cunnanini's book. It's a masterwork uh, history of the, of the American right. But one of the fascinating things that you document in your book is how Reagan conservatism was in itself a synthesis of many different strains of the right. It was a coalition of the uh, neocons, the paleocons, libertarians, the religious right. You know, there's so many different strains that became Reagan conservatism. And now you have this new populist conservatism, and you're saying DeSantis can... It seems to be a synthesis of that. 
maybe that's what we need to do in some ways, have a leader who can synthesize the good parts of populist conservatism, because I think there are very many good parts of populist conservatism and weed out the bad and synthesize it with a Reagan conservatism. Is that something that we should be trying to do? Or is this, you know, we need to have a big battle to sort of suppress conservative nationalism? Well, I mean, I don't know if that battle would be winnable. (laughs) So uh, I think we're past that point. I think I think with the type of synthesis you mentioned, Mark, is one positive future of the right in the sense that a right would be able to take in a lot of the populist revolt at the current moment, but also kind of meld it with a more traditional Reaganite agenda in a leader who doesn't repel as many people or more people than he attracts. And everything I've seen from DeSantis so far uh, is that he has the potential to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are other rising Republicans who are interested in the same things. Who? Well, I think that Governor Youngkin of Virginia also is interested in doing that, probably, but in a very different manner than DeSantis. So DeSantis, um, when he's not being a crisis manager like he is as we speak with the Hurricane Ian uh, aftermath, plays the tough guy. He plays that kind of Chris Christie, Donald Trump, now Ron DeSantis. I'm a big, wide-shouldered guy. I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm going to talk back to the media. Youngkin um, is... I actually think more Reaganite in the sense that he's always smiling, rarely goes on the an attack in the same way that DeSantis or Trump does, but yet, you know, understands that these cultural issues are extremely important to his coalition, um, and he's going to take on the educational establishment in Virginia. He's doing that right now, and um, he also has a, a positive approval rating. So, So those are kind of the two governors I look at now. And I, I think that the next election and here in a couple of weeks uh, will bring out even more leaders like that. But there's the alternative, which is that we don't have the leader who is able to kind of point in a direction that is constructive in policy and also successful politically. Right. And that, I mean, that's the balance that the right really hasn't had for for a long time, and, and I think it and the country sorely need to, re- to regain that balance. It's funny. I think we can have a different, a longer discussion about DeSantis on a future podcast, but it seems to me you're giving him sort of two hats, and I think he has a third hat, which is he's been a pretty good conservative reformer uh, on the state level. Oh, yeah, well, well we mentioned about the yeah. synthesis. Yeah. I mean, um, his uh, education reforms, economic reforms. No, what's interesting about DeSantis is he's able to do a lot of different things. Um, just being able to transition from the culture warrior sending Venezuelan asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard one week into I'm the crisis management guy, I'm getting us ready for the hurricane, I'm serving up breakfast to first responders at the Waffle House. Not everybody can do that, Yeah. right? right? Yeah. And he, I think, has demonstrated an ability to, um, to perform many roles as an elected official, and uh, that, that's very important. Yeah, we need, listen, I mean, you know, it's not just the right. Everybody needs, you know, better politicians, right? You know, in this, when I talk about this crisis, I know, you know, we're center-right conservatives, you know, we tend to talk about it and we tend to be introspective and, and critical as well. 
But I mean, the reality is, if you talk to, you know, our friends at the Liberal Patriot, right, Mm -hmm. they would say exactly the same thing on the left, you know, where they see much more intimately, you know, the purges that are happening and the fight, internal fights that are happening and all the rest. And yeah, we need a better class of politician. I know I'm going backward, but another, as you say that, another reason for why the madness started recently strikes me, which is genera- generational change. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's really true as well. And I, I agree. It's, fri- that, it's frightening. The- Matt, it's just such a pleasure having you. Thank you. I enjoy this every time, and I want to keep you on for extra hours because I learned so much. So thank you really for being with us. And everybody go buy his book. It's amazing. It really is. You know, it's as I said, it's not just shelf candy. It's actually a really long book I read from cover to cover. Excellent. Well, thank you both. I mean, what can I say? I agree with you. <laughs> and he's out. modest too. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. So here's the thing. I think that one of the lessons of history that I've taken is that history is made by great leaders, right? So, I mean, if you look at the great inflection points in history, you know, World War II, it was because of the leadership of Churchill. Uh, the Cold War was won because of Ronald Reagan stepped onto the stage and he was the right man at the right time. I mean, even go back to our founding, the fact that we had George Washington who was, came came and to Thomas power Jefferson and was— and, and Madison. All of them. But but you had our, our leader, George Washington, really was the first person in history to voluntarily hand power over. You know, the, the, this was the world ruled by kings and he stepped forward and was willing— America would have crowned him a king. If he wanted it and if he had a different character and he stepped aside and handed over power uh, to someone else chosen by the American people. So history is made by leaders. So I think the only way that we're ever going to synthesize this is not by having great podcasts, not by having even great books like Matt. All of these things are important to the to the process. It's going to require somebody who can who can lead. One of the things Matt said at the very end was how. Four years of Trump, how much it shaped conservatism because there was a man shaped in office country. who did it. And also how much it shaped liberalism right. uh, because the left in reaction to him. We need somebody who's going to step forward, who's going to be a leader, who can do that synthesizing. I have no idea. I don't have no idea if Ron DeSantis is the guy. I, I have a lot of hope for him because he seems to have like counterpunching populism of Trump. But he also is a really bold conservative reformer in his state and is doing a lot of good things that, that people who used to call themselves reform conservatives would embrace and education and other things like that. And then he could pivot. One of the things I wrote my Washington Post column the other day about this, compare DeSantis's briefings on the hurricane to Donald Trump's COVID briefings and you have everything you need to know. Yeah, that this, was a good piece, no, by the way. No fighting with reporters. Even there was one point where a reporter was sort of challenging him the other day and saying, you know, why didn't you have help in Lee County? And he turned around to her and he sort of put her in her place and he said, why weren't you in Lee County? You guys were all in your media. We're all in Tampa because you all thought the hurricane was going to go there. You weren't in Lee County. You know, he didn't say, you idiot. And then he went on and explained TikTok how the storm had moved and how they changed it as they were watching it. They started to move resources. He did it in a way that was forceful and pushed back on her and kind of schooled her, but didn't insult her and right. didn't and wasn't, wasn't offensive. To, and most people looked at that and said, that makes sense. Right. So, you know, having somebody who can pivot between those three things is pretty unusual. And, it uh, is. And it is. And look, you know, somebody said to me this weekend, I'm wor- they, they said, I'm worried that DeSantis is going to be the Scott Walker of 2024. You and I both like Scott Walker a lot. We do. He, he could do worse, although he, not necessarily electorally worse on the national stage. But, you know, look, I would love to see a 2024 election that's a competition between people like, as Matt said, like Glenn Youngkin, who managed to 
have all of the kindness of Mitt Romney without any of the squishy weakness. weakness. <laughs> <laughs> right, but also without any of the, the patrician baggage that came along with it, which was a, a very deft move. He managed not to offend you know, Trump Republicans, and he managed not to offend anti-Trump Republicans. And he won you know, the great state of Virginia where you and I, and Matt, by the way, lives. And so I'd love for us to have a group of really you know, good, smart, honest politicians, you know, whose main aim wasn't to have the most attention simply paid to them as opposed to doing the right thing for the American people. That would be great. Great, great. Got my fingers crossed. God willing, we'll have it. But let me just say, Victor Orban is not going to be part of that formula. And I do think that I, I feel like we do a service in calling that out because it's the kind of honest intellectual debate that we need. You know, calling people fascists or, or, or you know, fascist wannabes is just stupid labeling. That's what I meant when I was talking about Giorgio Meloni, you know, mm. you know far right. What, what do they even mean by far right? You know, and why, by the way, if she's far right, were others not called far left? I just don't understand this. I think you have a respectful conversation and you get to a good place. Here's, here's where I draw the line in European conservatism and what it can teach us is... If you, you know, thought Hitler was a good guy, that's probably not right. Yeah. Well, if you, <laughs> Yes, I will, I will say that. As long as you're not a racist and not a Putinist, then I'm willing to listen to you and learn from you, uh, which is the difference between Maloney and, uh, and Orban. I think we have to find a way, and it's when we need to find a leader who can lead the conservative movement to a place where we embrace the best of Reagan and the best of populism, populism in the conservative movement, because I think they've got a lot of important points. It's just, again, read Matt's book. The fight for the right for 100 years has been to to prevent the fever swamps from, from overtaking the broader conservative movement, to keep the people in the fever swamps in the fever swamps and to keep the right in a, in a position where it can lead the country. And that battle continues today in a different form, but, yeah, uh, it's, but it's, it's, a, it's been it's going a- on for 100 years. And it's a worthwhile battle. I'm sure we're going to have annoyed some of our our faithful listeners. So uh, if you have a different point of view, don't hesitate to write back. Share with us. Let us know what you think. Review, but only positively. Share. (laughs) Subscribe to our Substack. And thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 